Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 115 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking with Josie Beats from the Military Spouse JD Network about lawyer licensing and military spouses. Today's podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, which is ridiculously easy to use and packed with powerful features. Try it now at freshbooks.com slash lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Spotlight Branding, which wants you to know that having a new website designed for your law firm doesn't have to suck. Spotlight Branding prides itself on great communication, meeting deadlines, and getting results. Text the word website to 66866 in order to receive a free website appraisal worksheet. So Aaron, one of the things that we talked about today, which you and I talked about a couple weeks ago, is the clunkiness of having a 50-state licensing scheme. You'll hear all about why that causes trouble for military spouses, so I don't want to get into that too much. But uh, as I was talking to Josie, it sort of made me revisit this question that I think we all have about why is it so hard for lawyers to move from one state to the next? Doctors don't have to, um, they, they still can fix people over state lines, nothing's changed, but we have this idea that just because you're a lawyer in California, it doesn't mean that you can be a lawyer in Ohio competently. Well, I mean, I, I see a few separate issues there. So medicine and law are different in that how you heal a broken arm is not different in Iowa than Minnesota, whereas the difference between what a, an appropriate employment law contract looks like actually does vary from state to state. Sure. So science crosses borders. <laughs> At the moment, state-based laws, by definition, do not. Fair enough. Um, so, I, just, I guess I just want to undermine our entire uh, system of government. Yeah, so (laughs) that part, so whether we want to do away with states and just have a federal government, I guess, is a conversation for another time. All right. Um, I think the issue here is complex in a couple of different ways. So, of course, if we have different state laws, then there should at least be some mechanism for distinguishing between people who understand the laws of the state they should be practicing in versus a state where they don't have familiarity with those laws and therefore aren't appropriate to practice laws advising people about laws they aren't familiar with. That makes sense to me. How we test that and judge that, I think, is becoming crazier and crazier as the internet, as people's jobs change over time. We were talking two episodes ago about wave-in rules and how they relate to part-time practice and flexible workplaces and that it is unclear why competency is related to the nature of the time of your practice. Right. And I think it's also fair to say that our existing system doesn't necessarily actually do a great job of testing whether you are intimately familiar with the laws of your state. Right. So here's here's the example that I that comes to my mind is um most first-year lawyers who try to litigate in Minnesota make the same mistake because the civil rules say that 
a response to a motion for a summary judgment is due within a certain amount of time. And then there's this whole separate set of rules called the general rules of practice for district court, and they have a different timeline. So almost everybody uh, files it wrong the first time unless somebody's looking over their shoulder correcting them. Um, and I think the rules have been evened out now. But when I was practicing at first, that was the thing. And I made that mistake and it got pointed out to me. But the thing is, I was already licensed at that point. Right. right. Like, you were already deemed competent. Yeah. The licensing scheme did nothing to protect the Minnesota consumers from my inability to reconcile those two things. And there's no mentoring requirement. I could have gone out and made that mistake on my own. Nothing about the licensing scheme uh, protected from that kind of state-specific stuff. And I suspect that it almost never does. Well, not to mention, even to the degree you think a bar exam is a good measure of competence, which I think we can all agree is not the case. But even if it is, it doesn't actually test on every area of law And therefore, if you want to practice insurance law, even though your state's insurance regime wasn't mentioned on the bar exam, you're competent to practice insurance law in your state. Even if we think bar exams are good, there are plenty of areas of law that aren't tested on it, and yet we're still deemed competent to practice those. Yeah, it's that sort of ongoing, um, you're kind of confident, but there's a little bit of a wink and a nod but you probably shouldn't be trusted with anything yet. Yeah, and so this is stuff we all know. We've all thought about how the bar exam is a bad way to, or at least an imperfect way to assess whether people are competent to practice law. But then you've also got these other trends around part-time practice, about maternity leave, about military spouses. Um, There are movements in a number of states to think about alternative licensure arrangements. Washington State has its triple LT Um, Here in Minnesota, there is an active task force to assess whether Minnesota might pursue triple LT and other potential limited scope um, licensing arrangements here or in other states. And I think all of these kind of indicate trends toward us needing to rethink this model and adapt to change better. And of course, that is precisely what the model is really not meant to be able to do. Well, and I think it's uh, the core of that is to what extent are we trying to protect consumers and to what extent are we trying to protect lawyers? And most bar associations have a little bit of a conflict there. I was in uh, Montreal recently and I was talking to some of the lawyers there and I was brought there to speak by the Young Bar of Montreal. And they put on an awesome show, by the way. I had the most fun that I've ever had at a happy hour at a conference. Even though everyone was speaking French to you? Or because everyone was speaking French? No, they were all speaking English to me. Um, They called it The Cocktail, uh, which was charming. All right, will you be joining us for the cocktail? Of course, I'll be joining you for happy hour. No, the cocktail. <laughs> so there were confetti cannons and a DJ uh, and like 350 people at the cocktail. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, it was it was the most fun thing I've ever been to at a, at a lawyer conference. But anyway, uh, so I was talking to them about the bar association there. And I I've read about the different Canadian regulatory scheme, but I hadn't really thought about it in this way. They're the bar association... Uh, at least from the lawyer's perspective, does not represent lawyers. There, the Bar Association represents consumers to the extent where, uh, you know, one lawyer I was talking about was basically like, no, I don't, if I ever see the Bar Association's phone number uh, pop up on my caller ID, I'm going to start trembling because something's gone wrong. You don't interact with the Bar Association. They are almost adverse to lawyers. And you have to have different organizations if you want to do it, which, okay, like that's consumer protection. That's what it actually looks like. An organization, whether you call it a bar association or not, that is actually charged with preventing bad lawyers from working for people. But that's not really what's going on here. That's not what's going on in the regulatory scheme, the licensing scheme, none of this. 
this is all just sort of a way to collect fees. It does feel like that sometimes. It often feels like that. Yes, or make you take more tests because that's what everyone wants. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and that's kind of what military spouses have had to do. Um, and there is a movement afoot to change that. And I think it's a really, um, it doesn't need to stand for all of the things that we've just been discussing. Uh, and I think you'll hear Josie kind of go out of her way to avoid the, the slippery slope arguments that we've just been sort of making. But military spouses are a great example of where this can be a big problem and it's pretty unfair. So let's hear my conversation with Josie. My name is Josie Beats. I am the current president of the Military Spouse JD Network, a bar association for military spouses who are attorneys. I am a Louisiana licensed attorney that's lived in Tennessee, Virginia, Louisiana, Nebraska, New York, and California. Not all of those have been military related, but it's given me an appreciation for the moves that military families do have to make. Hi, Josie. Thanks for being with us. It's good to be here. Awesome. Tell me, you said the Military Spouses JD Network is a bar association. Tell me about that. What does that mean and, and what does it do for people? So we are an, um, an organization, a professional organization for military spouses who are attorneys. Um, that makes us a little bit different than most bar associations that are just in general for attorneys. But we focus on military spouses because we have some unique mobility issues. And is mobility the crux of it? Like that's where most of the problems come from? Or are there some other things that come up that you try to address as well? Uh, mobility is definitely the biggest piece of the pie, right? Because um, the, the way I explain it to lawyers is, you know, imagine if you had to take the bar exam every two years just so that you could live with your family. Um, the spouses of active duty service members routinely move every two to three years. That's just the cycle. That's the way our military is set up. And so, you know, personally, my family, we, we've moved, we've been pretty lucky. We've moved every three years or so, which has given us a little bit more stability. But because every time you move, you end up in a new state with a new jurisdiction and new licensing requirements. Um, because those moves are every two years, you don't ever quite get to that five years of reciprocity that most states require um, to waive in. And so what we've done as an organization and why we were first formed was to look at the licensing issues state by state, um, board of law examiners by board of law examiners, <laughs> and ask for an accommodation, ask for the, that board or that state bar association to um, give us a little bit of wiggle room so that we continue to practice our career as our active duty spouse moves around. You know, I, it's probably worth mentioning at some point in here that I was a foreign service brat growing up. So um, we, we also did the moving, although neither of my parents were lawyers, so I never encountered this issue. But um, I mean, there's a lot of things that are hard about moving. And I can only imagine stacking having to study for a new bar so a bar exam every two years on top of that. It's, you know, it's, there's a lot of things about moving that people don't like. Packing, unpacking, movers, breaking things, <laughs> yeah. things that are normal parts of our lives. But definitely doing it all while studying for a bar exam is pretty just brutal. Um, we have a member who studied for her fourth bar exam while moving from Rhode Island to Washington with her active duty Navy husband and four kids. Um, and the important part of that story is she passed, of course. But 
really, honestly, Sam, it shows the dedication that we lawyers have to our profession, yeah. right? You don't, you don't accidentally become a lawyer. I mean, right. some people have, <laughs> let's be clear. <laughs> but we want to be lawyers. We want to practice our profession. And these are the links that people are willing to go to, to, to make that happen. And so are most of the members of MSJDN women? We are, we are 94% women. Um, the military spouse community as a whole is about 90% women. So we trend a little bit more. Hmm. Um, when, and I, I think it's because we're, we're a pretty new organization. We've been around since 2011. Um, we're still sort of pulling the men out of the woodwork. Right. Um, <laughs> there, there are some stereotypes, um, just like there are stereotypes for lawyers. There are stereotypes for military spouses and sometimes um, male military spouses aren't interested in engaging in the same way that um, female military spouses are. But I can tell you, you know, as a board, as an organization, we're committed to diversity. And that means when we find a dude, we keep them. (laughs) I like that. So, okay, so uh, let's take apart the licensing issue because, you know, I'm thinking about uh, the, the immediate thing that springs to mind is, well, okay, moving is hard. I get it. But like, why should you be able to switch so easily when nobody else gets to? And I, I suppose what comes to mind is like, yeah, five years is about when you get to wave in most places. And the idea is that, you know, if you've been practicing for five years, you're competent. But military spouses who are lawyers have been practicing for five years, just not all in the same space, right? So that so that we, we're just asking that that presumption of competence should extend to them as well. Right. And we, you know, we absolutely um, are committed to maintaining high standards across the board in every state where we ask for licensing accommodations. We don't want any sort of lowering of standards or a different standard for a military spouse attorney. But, you know, states make exceptions sort of all the time for people to be able to practice. You know, some states have will let you practice if you're a professor at a law school or if you're in-house counsel for a corporation. You know, those positions aren't completely divorced from needing needing to know the state law. Um, but we sort of make those accommodations for good public policy reasons, right? Mm-hmm. And we think and sort of what we try to tell people and convince people is that the reason our situation rises to that same level of an important public policy reason is because our moves are mandatory and um, we actually don't get any say in them. So, you know, if my active duty army husband gets transferred to, say, Fort Irwin, California, he can't say, you know what, actually, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, Because he actually gets orders. That's not the deal. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's not the deal. He gets orders. And if he doesn't follow those orders, that's actually a criminal infraction. Right. Under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And so we, I, I mean, I haven't done extensive research, Sam, but I'm pretty sure we're the only group of people who, you know, if if our spouse doesn't move, right, if he wants to stay with the family or she wants to stay with the family in a certain location, they will go to jail. Right. <laughs> uh, well, people who are already in jail, I guess. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Um, so, so what is the what is the exception that you look for look like? What what's the general? I mean, you don't have to quote it at me, but I'm curious. Like, what is what does it look like? Oh, I know it, Sam. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> So what we ask for, we have a model rule that we sort of approach states with. Um, 
it's something that it's just our model It's not like an ABA model rule or anything like that. The ABA did help us with it. They just advised on it, though. Um, And what we do is we ask for a temporary license to practice while we're in the jurisdiction attached to someone that we're married to who is on active duty military orders, placing them in that jurisdiction. Seems fair. So, you know, the, the example I use is when my husband was assigned to Fort Campbell, which interestingly enough is on the Tennessee, Kentucky border. Mm-hmm. We, uh, I, the, the rule that we put forward asked for an accommodation that be, while we were there, I would have a license to practice in Tennessee. Um, as long as he was there on orders, then there's there's one other exception that we put in the rule that says, you know, my husband could while we were at Fort Campbell, my husband could have been assigned to what they call an unaccompanied tour in Japan or Korea, and we sort of extend the the licensing accommodation to accommodate that because that's orders that he follows where the family isn't allowed to come. Oh, so you would be able to continue in Tennessee even if he took off. Um, to Japan. Right. If we weren't, if, if he wasn't allowed to bring family with him, or if he were to deploy to Afghanistan for a year for some reason. Okay, let me let me be the, the uh, lawyer here and say, so what if you decided to move to Virginia while he was on his tour to Japan? What then? So he would have... how it works? <laughs> I could do that. No, I could absolutely do that. Um, contrary to popular opinion, the Department of Defense isn't allowed to tell me where to go. Of course. Um, <laughs> But I could move, and people do, they move home sometimes in those situations to be around family or a support system. Um, But my spouse would not have orders that would send him to Virginia, which would make me eligible to use the rule in that jurisdiction. Gotcha. That sounds, so tell me, you've had some success moving this to, uh, getting this accommodation in 23 states, I think you said, right? Right. And how hard has it been? Um. You know, in some ways, it's been very easy, and in some ways, it's been very hard. Could I give a better lawyer answer? <laughs> I, I require that of all my guests. If, it, if the answer <laughs> isn't, it depends. We just shut off the recording and, and try again. What we found, Sam, is that when we tell people our story, and when we explain sort of the, you know, my spouse doesn't get to choose where he goes, you know, he, does, he can't just get out of the military. Mm-hmm. Lawyers get it. They absolutely understand um, and they pretty quickly want to help us figure out a way forward. There are some exceptions to that. I love each and every board of law examiner across the country, but they are not sort of notorious for their forward thinking about the profession mm-hmm. and the mobility of the profession. And so we have had to do some convincing. Um, I told you we have our model rule, right? Um, and I think we've only had two or three states that have actually enacted the model rule with no changes. And so each rule is a little bit different. So what is the pushback? Interestingly enough, we, you know, some of it is very legitimate. Some of it's like, why would we want a lawyer in our state that had, that doesn't know the law in the state? And again, you know, we go back to that public policy argument, you know, a, a lawyer straight out of law school doesn't really know the law in your state, regardless of how you feel about your part. Right. Some of it has been straight up protectionism. You know, uh, one of the most interesting things to, to, to watch over the past uh, five or six years is the, um, the pushback from legal communities immediately surrounding military installations. Oh, that makes sense. Right? They've like, got a lot invested in representing that community, of course. They do. And there's a perception that if you're the military spouse lawyer, you're going to get all the 
um, divorces or custody issues, things like that, you know, and you're going to pull from their business. Well, that's, that raises a good um, point. Uh, are, when military spouses move and, and get a, an accommodation, do they go to work for other lawyers for the most part, or are they moving their own practices around, or is there no trend? There, there's definitely a trend. Of, you know, we do a survey every year, and of the attorneys that are employed or have had employment since law school, they've been equal parts um, employed as sort of associates in firms or government attorneys. Hmm. Um, those are both about 27, 28%. Um, 6% have, done, have gone solo. Um, and then we have sort of a smattering of other, you know, people who've done paralegal work, people who are partners in or- organizations, people who are judges. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Huh. Um, but mostly they're working, they're lawyers working for other people. You know, we understand the upfront cost of hanging out a shingle. Right. And there's very little incentive to do that in a community where you know you're only going to be there for a certain amount of time. Um, we do have members who have virtual practices uh, that do immigration work or um, work around security clearances. Um, some of them are former JAGs themselves. And so we do, we do encourage our members or we try and give our members the resources so that they can build like a virtual practice. Well, it seems like that's one logical way to do it because otherwise aren't you applying for a new job every two years? Yes, we get really good at networking. <laughs> fast. Really fast. Yeah. Because I suppose if it takes you three months to find a job, now it's, you know, you're down to a year and nine months and, um, or probably a year and a half before you have to give, turn, hand in your notice and head off to a new job. That's rough. It can, be, it can be really difficult, especially if you've just left a job that you loved, mm-hmm. you know. Um, my personal story is I'm licensed in Louisiana, licensed in the great state of Louisiana, which has reciprocity with exactly no one because mm-hmm. we all make bad decisions. <laughs> Not that I am disparaging my Louisiana law license at all. Uh, we, my husband's first duty station, we got married in 2008. He got stationed at Fort Polk, Louisiana, and I was able to secure employment full through the three and a half years that we were there. Now I had a bunch of different jobs. <laughs> I was a law clerk in a small um, district court trial court um, in a rural county, which was very interesting. I was a legal aid attorney for kids who were in foster care um, in three of the very rural Louisiana parishes. I was a lawyer for the United States Army. I mean, on the one, on the flip side, it sounds like you, it, how can you possibly get bored switching it up all the time? <laughs> well, you know, the, but it was, I had all these opportunities because I was a Louisiana licensed attorney. It was great. Um, but then we moved to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Um, and I found myself with no legal network, no knowledge of the sort of um, legal environment. And I was just convinced that I was never going to work again. Um, and so, so I did a lot of volunteer work. I did a lot of networking. And those, you know, those con- I learned that those contacts don't pay off quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I did eventually get a job and started to work with the Tennessee Bar Association. It was it was difficult because I loved my work in Louisiana. I loved working with kids. I loved working for the Army where I, I advised soldiers and families on a whole host of issues. All I've ever wanted to be was a free lawyer for people. And so it was great. <laughs> um, but, but it is. It can be hard. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we do our initial focus um, with MSJDN was licensing. But we've really tried to expand uh, the 
the relationships that we're building to create hiring opportunities for military spouses. Well, let me stop you for one minute just because we need to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, let's talk about that. And then I also want to talk about what the implications might be for the way we talk about state licensing schemes uh, for everyone, not just military spouses. So uh, we'll hear from our sponsors for a few minutes and we'll come back. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three client projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to modern life as a small firm lawyer. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks, and get paid up to four days faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBook is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Spotlight Branding is an internet marketing company that doesn't suck. Most solo and small firm lawyers have had at least one truly miserable experience with a web designer or internet marketing company. So if the idea of launching a new website for your law firm makes you queasy, they get it. Spotlight Branding prides itself on excellent communication with its clients, being responsive, professional, respectful, and delivering what it tells you it's going to deliver. Spotlight Branding works exclusively with solo and small law firms. Services include law firm website design, email newsletter management, social media marketing, and more all designed to make your law practice more profitable. And Spotlight Branding is currently offering a free gift to our listeners. Simply text the word WEBSITE to 66866 and receive their free website appraisal worksheet, an easy way to evaluate your web presence, identify what's working, and spot opportunities to improve. And we're back. So Josie, when we stopped, you were talking about uh, or you're starting to talk about MSJDN's efforts at making it easier for military lawyer spouses to find employment when they move so frequently. So tell us about that. What's um, What was the genesis of that and how are you going about trying to make that happen? You know, when, when we first started, like I said, we were focused on licensing. We knew that you know, there was a, there's a joke, right, that we wanted our motto to be no more bar exams, please. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, a license is only good if you can sec- secure employment. Um, and a license would be really great, but it'd be great if I just didn't have to even get licensed in a new state because I could take my job with me. And so what we did is we created a program called Homefront to Hired 
that allows us the sort of flexibility to reach out to employers who are interested in hiring military spouses and connect them with our members and create hiring opportunities. And so one of our partners is Prudential. They actually came to us looking to hire a military spouse attorney and um, found one of our members that had, you know, they were looking for 10 years experience in a certain field. And they brought her on as a full-time telework position. So she can do that work if she's stationed in New Jersey, if she's stationed in Singapore with her husband and her family. But what we've also tried to do is work to find employers who will provide military spouses with the tools to pitch telework mm-hmm. to their um, to their jobs. And, and we've had varying degrees of success with that. It's all been individual and sort of ad hoc, but we're working on making it a little bit more organized. I like, I like hearing the word telework. I, I feel like we don't use that word enough. <laughs> right. I, I just like telecommute, right? Because you are working. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're not moving. <laughs> um, our, our other great partner that we um, honored several years ago is the, the Army JAG Corps. Um, they created a program where they have a database of resumes of military spouses who are attorneys, not just army spouses, but Navy spouses, Air Force spouses, all branches. And when one of their installation legal offices has an opening, the, the hiring authority there has the option to go into that database and pull out a military spouse attorney and hire quicker than if they went through the normal hiring process. Um, you still have to be qualified. Right. You still have to interview. You still have to be able to do the job and do the job well. Um, but that has been a huge benefit to our members. Last year alone, in last fiscal year alone, they hired 40 spouses. That's awesome. Um, you know, our numbers aren't that big, so 40 is a big deal for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because, like, uh, there are so many talented people out there that for various reasons aren't able to work a full-time job that requires them to commute every day. And there are so few employers that are willing to create uh, models of employment that are flexible enough to employ those people. And there's there's a ton of good work to be done there uh, that, that people with non-traditional sort of arrangements can do. And so few employers uh, are, are going to do it. So it's, it's cool that uh, you're using the um, the military spouse angle to maybe open some people up to it that wouldn't otherwise have been willing. Uh, that's cool. It's it's fun. You know, we really see, we feel, I feel <laughs> from time to time, like we're really on the cutting edge of the profession. Yeah. Um, that we're pushing the profession in ways that they otherwise might not move simply due to the fact that our being military spouses for good or bad does open doors. Of course it does. Cause it's, there's an automatic, like, uh, well, at least I think there's often an automatic, like, Oh, that, I mean, that's a hardship. It's a noble thing. And so we're going to be, we're going to listen to this when otherwise somebody might just be dismissive. Right. And so we, we try to have those conversations about, uh, whether it's telework or flex schedules or, you know, accommodating, um, sort of more, work-life balance if it exists at all um, because because that's important to our group and when you say I need a flexible schedule because you know for you know, I need kid pickup or take care of a parent not that those aren't important at all those are very important and you should absolutely have the flexibility to do that but when you say because 
my husband's deployed in Afghanistan and I had, I can only talk to him between these hours. <laughs> and, you know, right. it, it takes on, it just takes on a different level of urgency. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I don't, I don't think there's any value more or less placed on that. Um, but it, it opens people's brains to the idea that maybe, maybe their ideas of FaceTime, you have to be in the office, you have to do this, that and the other. Maybe, maybe they, maybe that's not a really good reason after all. So let's have a different one of those conversations now, which is, uh, I'm curious what you might think about the sort of, you know, 50 whatever jurisdiction licensing scheme that we have right now. You've got members who every couple of years are getting licensed in different states now, I assume. Mm-hmm. And, um, what has proved to be difficult about getting up and running in a new state, um, learning the new state's laws and procedures, and is does any of that feel like a good reason to uh, for each state to continue licensing its own people, or are you starting to get the feeling that, hey, this all might just be a heck of a lot easier if we had a U- U.S. law license? I mean, that definitely would make things a lot simpler for us. Um, we, we often talk... Uh, sort of as a leadership <laughs> of the organization, wouldn't it be great if we were put out of a job, right? Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have this problem? And that and that's one way to solve that problem. I'm I'm not optimistic that we ever get to that point, um, only because there are there are a lot of people that feel very strongly and very personally about their the laws in their state and how different they are. Um, I mentioned I'm licensed in Louisiana. Every time I tell someone that they bring up the Napoleonic code (laughs) (laughs) and my, and people disagree. Many people disagree with me just generally, but people disagree with my assessment, which is, it just means that in Louisiana, we have some funny words for stuff. Um, But it's basically the same thing that you have in Ohio or Nebraska or Florida. We just call it something different. And that's kind of the case in every state. You have to, get up to date on the lingo and get up to date on some of the laws. And so I do think there's a good argument for a 50 state license. Um, Even if you had a 50 state license, we would still be advocating for these temporary accommodations if there was any sort of state by state specificness of it. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we asked for a temporary license, Sam, is because we we don't want like five bar licenses. That's a lot of CLEs and a lot of license uh, fees to maintain. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of disciplinary board fees. That's a lot of, yeah, the the number, most of our members pay over $700 a year for bar licensing fees. And so I I do think that it would be really nice if we could have a level-headed national conversation in the legal community about moving not just to the UBE, but to to a a 50-state solution. Um, not that we're all going to agree on the path, but it would just be able, it'd be great to have that conversation without, um, people getting too angry. Well, so based on your experiences and the, your members experiences, what do you feel like are the legitimate parts of that, uh, you know, getting up and running in a new state and what parts aren't really as hard as, um, maybe we may think they are. I mean, I, I'm trying to imagine starting from scratch, the hardest parts are probably getting networked into the community, um, finding mentors, finding people to work with. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that I think learning uh, variations on type of law I already know something about are really going to be all that difficult. I agree. Um, it's it's really the hard part is finding finding those mentors, finding those people, not even mentors, but colleagues who, who you could call and bounce an idea off of. Yeah. Um, I am a bar association evangelist. Um, I believe deeply in the 
the bar association structures as far as a professional network go. Um, I'm concerned that people of my generation and younger don't participate in those groups as much as they should. And they're really missing out on a certain type of opportunity for that. But it's really, that's really how we suggest people get into their local legal community. Most bar associations, other than your sort of state bars, right, are voluntary. You don't necessarily have to be licensed in the jurisdiction to belong to the Women's Bar Association of Tennessee, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can join those you can join those groups and it's it's not just for the benefit of our members if our members go to those meetings and tell their stories it makes it more likely that we're going to be successful in talking to people about military spouse law licensing accommodations as well so do you have members who are um i assume this is uh this changes but do you have members in all 50 states who are um, approaching their bar associations and looking for uh, accommodations so we have um we're actively working in about a dozen states right now. Um, there are some states that just don't have a very heavy military presence. Um, and, and some of these rule change processes come up sort of by happenstance. For example, just last week, a military spouse licensing accommodation went live in Michigan, mm-hmm. um, which is really exciting for us. Not the least of which is because Michigan has a little bit of a different process. And so our rule actually had to go through the state legislature. Normally it goes through the courts because yeah. the courts go. <laughs> it was very, I learned something new every day. <laughs> but there's about um, 250, I think, active duty service members stationed in the state of Michigan. Um, so we're not talking about big impact, but still important to get on the map yeah. to show Michigan military families that. You know, this, the state's legal community does think that they're important. But compare that to a state like Virginia, where we do have a licensing accommodation, has about 150,000 active duty troops. You know, there's just there's just a little bit of a different impact there. And so we do have, we are an all-volunteer organization. All of our advocacy in the states is grassroots. It's led by a volunteer on the ground in the state who goes to bar association meetings, um, cold calls, <laughs> retired federal judges who might have a connection to the military community um, and ask them if they'd be willing to have coffee and talk about this issue. We, we use it not just to advocate for the organization, but as a great networking opportunity for the military spouse who ends up in that new place. It's always easier to walk into a networking reception when you have something to talk about. Right. Um, so for our listeners, if they're interested in supporting this, uh, I imagine one thing they can do is if they're on a rules committee and an ethics rules committee, uh, bring it up <laughs> and reach out Absolutely. to you and let you know about it. Um, what are some other things that they might be able to do to support this? You know, we have a, a great website that has some resources on it, um, msjdn.org. We are always willing to send someone out to come and talk to a bar association about these issues. Things that they can do, obviously, participate in our home front to hired program. It's it's amazing. We do a lot of work to network with employers and bring new partners on board. But our most successful hiring moments have been when a company just has felt so compelled that they've they've cold called us hmm. and said, can you find me a military spouse attorney? And I was like, well, I have 1,200 of them, so I think so. <laughs> um, and so particularly in those in uh, communities right outside the gate, as we call them, right outside the installation, military installation, there's a misconception that, well, you're a military spouse, you're only going to be here for two years, right? So why would I hire someone that I know is going to leave? 
my big ask for anyone who has the power to hire is don't fall into that trap because we are going to work harder for you over that two years than anyone that you might hire that's from the local community. And I, I don't say that to say that we're so awesome. I'm saying we have to do it yeah. because we need your good recommendation to get the next job. Yeah. And you're, you're hoping to pay it forward as well so that, uh, you know, if you're the military spouse who had the job in the next town that you end up in, uh, maybe that paves the way for you to get a job there and likewise behind you for the next one. Right. Right. Um, one of my favorite statistics that we get from our annual survey is the number of military spouses who found their job through the military spouse JD network. Um, we're at about 15% now. Hmm. 15% of our spouses have found a job through the network. I haven't been able to find any private bar data that can, lets us compare, but to us, that's a huge number. Yeah. We're, you know, we're six years old. It sounds to me like uh, another thing that listeners could do is if you're interested in remote work, uh, and you're interested in hiring a, a virtual attorney, let's say, um, this seems like a really good way to find somebody who is going to be an enthusiastic remote worker for uh, for you. And it's, it's maybe worth reaching out and posting a job and uh, if you've got work that doesn't need an office presence to do it. Absolutely. You know, a lot of the big firms have moved their back office functions to some virtual brains. I know Littler Mendelssohn was one of them, and we have several spouses that are employed there just by virtue of the fact that's an opportunity to do your job from anywhere across the country or around the globe. And so we are always looking for those new opportunities. And we're just another place to post a job. You know, we're more than happy to be that. But we also like we want to build a relationship with those organizations because we want to make sure that they're getting good attorneys we know they're going to get good attorneys, but they're having a good experience all the way around. So Josie, if people want to get in touch or find out more, um, post a job, support MSJDN, uh, where can they find it? So our website is msjdn.org. We also have a Twitter, um, Mill Spouse JD. And, you, and they can, of course, find us on Facebook. Um, anyone can post a job on our jobs board um, by going to msjdn.org slash jobs. And that'll all automatically go to all of our members. Um, it's a really great way to increase diversity in your firm. We also participate in, every year in a the Veterans Legal Career Fair in Washington, D.C. That's for all veterans, not just active duty JAGs or former JAGs, but they've been kind enough to extend invitations to military spouse attorneys every year. So especially those big firms who do that sort of OCI type interviewing, we would love to see them on the roster of people who are interested in hiring through the Veterans Legal Career Fair as well. Very cool. Thank you so much for being with us today, Josie, and good luck getting the other 27 states. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. We're on our way. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and The Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.